0: Some criminals rob banks. Others break into your house. Identity thieves steal your personal information and then use it to commit all sorts of crimes. They pretend to be you to get a credit card, apply for a loan, or drain your bank account. The losses are staggering. By one estimate, identity theft victims in the U.S. lost $56 billion in 2020. The good news, there are ways to protect yourself. I'm Herb Weissbaum, The Consumer Man, a contributing editor at Checkbook.org.
1: Welcome to Consumerpedia at Checkbook.org. We're the nonprofit that helps consumers select services, avoid trouble and save money. Because we don't accept any advertising or take money from any business we recommend, you can rely on Checkbook.org to be completely independent and objective. Now, here's the host of Consumerpedia, America's consumer expert, the consumer man, Herb Weisbaum.
0: Identity theft is a serious and growing problem and we're all at risk. Last year, the Federal Trade Commission received more reports about identity theft than any other type of complaint. In this episode of Consumerpedia, we'll explain the various types of identity fraud, how the crooks get your information and use it, plus ways to fight back. Our guest is Eva Velasquez, a nationally respected expert on ID theft. She's president and CEO of the nonprofit Identity Theft Resource Center. Eva, thank you for making time to join us on Consumerpedia.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Herb.
0: So I remember when I started contacting the Identity Theft Resource Center, that was back in like 1999 or so. It was something that a few people heard about, but something nobody really worried about. Today, I think we've all heard about identity theft, and a lot of us are really worried about it. How would you describe the situation today?
2: Well, I think that concern is warranted. Identity theft has grown exponentially in the last 20, 22 years. And, you know, it used to be that our identity credentials were used in very specific circumstances. Your employer had them, your bank or financial institution would have them, but they weren't used broadly. And now, our identity credentials are used for just about everything that we do. I mean, even logging into your social media accounts. So the way that we use them has grown. Therefore, the threat of misuse has grown exponentially.
0: So ID theft is a term that encompasses a variety of scams and cons and crimes, but they all involve basically the same thing, stealing or getting your personal information to use to commit a crime or do something you don't want the person to do. And you break this down into four basic types of identity theft there at the ITRC, and I want to talk about each one of them. There's financial, government, criminal, and there's medical. So let's start with financial.
2: It's just like what it sounds like. So anything within the financial services sector, credit cards are really the most common, but it could be, you know, an auto loan, a mortgage, even a student loan. It's very broad. But anything that has to do with the financial sector and anything that has to do with your money, that is financial identity theft.
0: Financial is the most common, but in many cases, the easiest to resolve if someone steals your credit card. Now, to buy something. That's identity theft technically, but you can contact the credit card company and have it dealt with.
2: The use of an existing account is fairly common, and you're right, it is fairly easy to resolve, but that's because we have so many consumer protection laws in place. You have the ability to dispute a charge. There's a uniform process in order to resolve that. It gets much trickier when it's a new account, because often the victims, they don't have a relationship with that institution, so they don't even know how to navigate the process. If it's your existing card, and I'll just use the example. Let's say it's a Bank of America card. That's my bank. I know that bank. I'm going to call the number on the back of the card or engage with them in the way I normally do. But if that's my bank and now all of a sudden I'm finding out that there are these new credit cards opened at Chase Bank... I'm not a customer there. I don't engage with them or interact with them. So now I need to figure out how do I get in touch with them? What is the legitimate website or the legitimate phone number? And it can take much longer to resolve.
0: Criminal identity theft is the worst. It can ruin your life, but thankfully it's the least common.
2: That, that's correct. It is not as common as any of the other types. But because you're dealing with different jurisdictions, they can all have different recovery and remediation processes. Some of them still require people to show up in person. For example, you know, you may be a resident of Washington State, but there's this criminal case out of Texas, you have to demonstrate that that case is not connected to you. You often have to provide biometrics. It might be fingerprints or even a a photograph. Now, we've made some progress over the years. It's better understood, and so there are more things in place to help victims resolve this without having to actually physically appear before a judge. But we haven't made as much progress as we would like, and it can still tarnish someone's record. They go to apply for a job, and they're told, well, we can't give you this job because you're actually serving a prison term currently. That's Mm. a real story we talked to a victim who was trying to get their dream job and they were denied that job because according to the background check, they were serving a prison sentence in another state.
0: Yikes, so it can ruin your life. Somebody can do something horrible to you and you're paying the consequences for the rest of your life.
2: Absolutely, because think about it. What employer is going to say, oh, you know what, you are the best candidate and we know this is going to take a while, but you go ahead and resolve that and we'll hold the position for you. That really doesn't happen. They move on to the next candidate because they have a business to run. And who knows if that individual is going to ever get that opportunity again. And we look at that in terms of lost opportunity cost. When someone has to put opportunities or activities that are going to advance their life in some way, they have to put that on hold because of an identity crime. We never know when that's going to come back around again.
0: So we talked about financial, we talked about criminal. Number three is government identity theft.
2: And government identity theft really has been the story these last two years throughout the pandemic. Now, this is the misuse of your information in government systems. So that can be IRS or state tax identity theft where your information is used to file a fraudulent return. It could be for unemployment benefits. It could even be for SNAP benefits. And it has been extremely prevalent and extremely lucrative both in 2020 and 2021. And there's a very long tail on this type of identity theft because not only is the individual dealing with their information being misused in those systems, but there's a tremendous amount of cleanup because oftentimes, particularly with either IRS and unemployment, those are taxable benefits. And so once a victim discovers that their information has been misused, they have to talk to multiple state and federal organizations to unwind this issue because they are now being told, oh, you owe taxes on that money both at the state and the federal level. And the victim is going, I never received those funds. So not only do they have to deal with the entity where the fraud occurred, they then have to deal with these entities that are trying to get the taxes on those dollars that they never received.
0: And I know from talking to you that medical identity theft is a huge category right now because it's just so lucrative to steal somebody's medical information and use it for a variety of reasons.
2: Well, medical identity theft, it's not as prevalent as financial and government, particularly government right now. But the challenge with medical is that it's one of the few forms of identity theft that can have physical consequences. If someone is receiving medical goods and services in your name, you run the risk of having mixed medical records so you could have improper care you run the risk of not being able to fill prescriptions that you need for a legitimate health concern that you have because perhaps there's contraindications on those prescriptions in your medical records that are wholly inaccurate. And even you can run the risk of having a criminal investigation launched. We did talk with a victim where this happened because a thief was using her information to get opioid prescriptions at multiple pharmacies. It actually came into law enforcement's line of sight and law enforcement started this investigation now understand it wasn't actually her but because it was all of her identity credentials being used then they started investigating her so she not only had a case of medical identity theft that she had to remediate she now had a situation where criminal identity theft also had to be remediated
0: I interviewed a victim a number of years ago, a high school student who was giving blood. There was a blood drive at her school because there was a big car accident and a couple of kids were in the hospital. And when she went to donate blood, she was told she wasn't allowed to donate blood because she had AIDS. Well, she didn't have AIDS. Someone had stole her medical file, was getting treatment for AIDS in another state. It got commingled into her file and she and her parents had to work on this and finally get it out of the system. But you can see how, what if somebody had changed the blood type when they created medical identity theft and your blood type was changed in your file or something? I mean, this could have some serious medical consequences.
2: Very serious. I'm, I mean, it can have life-threatening consequences. So, and your example is another very good example of these things that we don't necessarily think about when we hear, oh, identity theft. It's just an economic crime. It's not that big of a deal. Actually, that's not accurate. Here are some of the real-life consequences that can occur when someone takes over takes your credentials and misuses them in these different systems.
0: And let's talk for a second to the parents listening about child identity theft. I don't think a lot of people even know that a criminal might wanna steal their child's identity to do bad things with. Talk about that if you would.
2: I think you're right. They have the same types of credentials that we have, particularly a social security number. And in many ways, because it's a clean record, it's a clean file, thieves really like to use children's social security numbers and build up what we call synthetic identities because they can't use a child's true and accurate date of birth you know a three-year-old is not going to be granted a line of credit but they can use everything else and change that date of birth and build up a credit file so they'll do that over time and build up the credit limits. It feels strange because they're actually paying the bills for a while. It it doesn't have a negative effect. They build up a credit score, they build up a credit profile so that they can have higher limits, and then they do what's called a bust out, where they max out all of the available credit limits, and then they don't pay the bills. And the child or the parents of the child generally don't discover this until they are trying to move forward in some way in their lives. Often when they get to the age where they're starting to apply for student loans, they then find out, oh, wait, I have a credit history that's 12 years old or 10 years old that is just absolutely decimated. And clearly it can't belong to this individual who's only 17 or 18.
0: Or they start getting collection notices or calls for a kid that's six years old that shouldn't even have a credit card.
2: Exactly. And we have certainly heard from victims that are having that experience.
0: So ID thieves have three main ways to get your information. They can steal it, they can buy it, or they can trick you into giving it to them. We're going to talk about that next.
1: You're listening to Consumerpedia,
0: powered by Checkbook.org.
1: Checkbook can help you make a smart decision when you use local service providers. Whether you're buying a bike, choosing a new dentist, or hiring a plumber or electrician. Our advice is always free. Ratings of local services are available with a subscription in these seven metro areas. Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, Seattle, San Francisco, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and Washington, D.C. If you live in one of these seven areas and haven't joined Checkbook yet, check us out. Get a free 30-day subscription by going to checkbook.org consumerpedia.
0: We're talking to Eva Velasquez, President and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center, a great nonprofit that is there to help you if you are a victim of identity theft. Eva, how do folks reach you?
2: I am so glad you asked me that, Herb. They can reach us in a variety of ways. Our toll-free number is 888-400-5530, and they can come to our website, which is Center dot org. And we have a help center, there's self service there, and they can look up the issue that they need help with. But we also have live chat on our website. So they can talk directly with an advisor and just ask their questions that way. So any way you feel comfortable interacting with us or engaging with us, we're here to help.
0: So let's talk about how the bad guys get our personal information. They can hack something and get it that way. They can buy it on the dark web from people who have already stolen it. Or in many cases, we're tricked. They trick us into giving this information. So let's talk first of all about the hacks and the data breaches. That's a big way that they're getting this information, right? It was a record year for data breaches in 2021.
2: Unfortunately, it is probably the biggest way historically, because the pace of data breaches, the scope and the scale of them has continued to increase over the years. We've been collecting information on publicly reported data breaches since 2005. So we understand the historical trends. And last year in 2021 was the biggest number the highest number on record and it was by a significant margin so we are talking about millions and millions of records in connection with the number of data breaches that were breached just last year and when you add that in aggregate to all the years I hate to say this, but so much of our data is out there. You should really be operating under the premise that your data has already been compromised because of the state of data breaches right now.
0: And we're gonna talk about that in just a minute, but first I wanna ask you about the social engineering, how they get us to give them the information. We have no control over data breaches. We do have control over the information we share.
2: Absolutely. And the very recent trend, I'd say within the last 6, 8, 10 months, it has been this huge uptick in social engineering. And just to level set for our listeners, social engineering is where the thieves are using psychological tactics rather than technical expertise to try to get information from you, data from you. And it sounds so appealing. It sounds so legitimate. And the challenge that we have is because we ourselves are data creators, we are out there posting about ourselves on social media. There's so much information and data out there about us that it's very easy for someone to find out what's gonna resonate with you. The best example that I can give is the social engineering thief may look at sort of a profile of you, what you put on your social media, what you've liked in the past, all of those different kinds of things and go, hey, that person really likes investments and they think that's just the way to go. So I'm going to hit them with an investment opportunity versus someone else they see doing a lot of, charity work, a lot of volunteer work, talking about causes and issues. Hey, I'm going to hit them up and ask them for a donation to my phony charity. So it's really very highly personalized and That is why it's so challenging for us as humans to detect it because it feels like, oh, they know me and they know this is something that I would be interested in, this must be legitimate. And they will ask you to share things like not only your money, give me this donation, but then, oh, this is how we're gonna do it on this platform. I need your login credentials, can you share that with me? Oh, I have to validate that you're really who you say you are. I need to do some identity verification, can you give me your social security number? And at the time that you're engaging with these folks, it feels very legitimate, and so we we willingly hand over that information. And if I can just take another moment on this topic to share one Mm -hmm. more piece, and that's multi-factor authentication codes. Those are the codes that are an extra layer of security. So if your login and password are compromised, someone still can't get into your account because you need to have that MFA code. And right now the thieves are using social engineering to get us to share those codes and it's working. People are sharing those codes. Even though it says right on the email or the text message, don't share this with anyone, we're doing it because the story feels so compelling. There's a really good reason why I should share this. So the social engineering, unfortunately, is working right now and it's out in full force.
0: The only person who would ever ask you to share that multi-factor authentication code is a criminal. Just remember that. I don't care what the story is.
2: Oh, that's so good. That's a great way to put it, Herb.
0: And they really do know how to push the buttons. I mean, I've seen these texts, we're going to shut down your Amazon account because we noted fraud. You got to call us right away. Then they ask you to verify yourself. Your bank account has been compromised right away. You got to, you know, and you got to slow down and say, wait a minute. Is this legit or not? We've got to learn to be more skeptical and call the bank or contact Amazon and find out if there's really a problem. Be skeptical.
2: If you didn't initiate the contact, go to the source. Verify, verify, verify. All
0: right, we're going to talk about a few things we can do to protect yourself next. You're listening to Consumerpedia, powered by Checkbook.org.
1: Consumerpedia Fast Facts. People who have an active social media presence have a 30% higher risk of being a fraud victim than those who are not, according to Javelin strategy. Identity theft isn't limited to breaches and hacks. Identity thieves also use the telephone and steal mail from unlocked mailboxes. Stolen credit card information is often sold on the dark web, in some cases for as little as 50 cents per card.
0: Okay, Eva, we've talked about the problems. Let's talk about the solutions. What kind of things that I can do to protect myself? And I think it starts with something you mentioned before, is stop giving out so much personal information and sharing information with someone who just asked for
2: it. Oh, this is my favorite part of the conversation, talking about what we can do to empower ourselves. And you're right, Herb, adopting that mindset of just not oversharing. Think before you post, think before you text, think before you verbally share that information. Just because someone asks you for something doesn't mean that you have to provide it. And I always tell people, just like you said, the only person that's ever going to ask you to share an MFA code is a criminal. Mm -hmm. If you are engaged with somebody, particularly on the phone, and they're asking you for information that you're not comfortable giving, and you say, hey, I I need to verify this. You're saying you're with my bank, but I need to verify this. You're Mm -hmm. saying you're with XYZ government department, but I need to verify this. No legitimate organization is going to start yelling at you and browbeating you. You're their customer. They want to retain you. So when you start getting that level of pushback, that guarantees that it's a scam. If it's truly your bank on the phone trying to get in touch with you and you say, I need to verify that I'm really talking to my bank, they're going to say, thank you. Please call us back as soon as possible. We want to address this, but they're not going to start screaming at you.
0: That literally happened to me. I was in Nordstrom shopping a number of years ago. My wife was in one department, I was at the other. We're using the same credit card. The algorithms flagged that as fraud. I get a call, hi, it's Capital One. We think somebody's using your card. And I quite frankly said, I don't know who you are. I said, I will call the number on the back of my card, and I will contact the fraud department and find out what's going on. And the person said, thank you very much. We appreciate that. I called, and it was them suspecting there was a problem. But I had no idea who that person was calling me on the phone, you never do. And they can fool you with the uh, caller ID. They can spoof that. You've gotta be the one who places the call to the person who's asking for the information, not them calling out of the blue.
2: you only have to remember one thing, and that's go to the source. And that applies across the board. If you didn't initiate the contact, go to the source, and your story is case in point. They didn't start yelling at you. They said, okay, thank you.
0: Yep. I want to finish up talking about credit freeze as one of the few things that we can actually do to keep the horse from getting out of the barn as opposed to doing something after the horse is out of the barn once the fraud has taken place. You did a recent survey that I found discouraging, I guess is the way to put it. A thousand people were asked if they were familiar with credit freezes, and more than three-fourths told you they were, but fewer than one-third had frozen their credit at one time for any reason, and only 3% froze their credit after receiving a data breach notice. That is incredibly troubling. Tell us why we should be doing this proactively right now.
2: The survey was a bit disheartening, I agree with you, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the credit freeze process, primarily that it's too cumbersome, it's really hard to do, and it's not. Maybe it used to be, but it has come a long way. So I want to encourage everyone, if you haven't already, please, please, please freeze your credit at all three of the bureaus. It's free now, you don't have to pay anything to freeze it. The thawing process is extremely easy. And in fact, when you need access to your credit after you've frozen it, you can thaw it for a specific amount of time. So you only have to make one contact to the Bureau. You only have to say, please thaw my credit for 48 hours, and then it will automatically refreeze when that time frame is up. And what freezing does is even if someone has all of the identity credentials necessary to impersonate you and open new accounts they still can't do it because they are frozen out of accessing that information no new credit can be granted while your credit reports are frozen so please there's no reason not to do it and parents You can do it for your kids. That too is free. It's a little bit more cumbersome because you not only have to prove the identity of the child, you also have to prove that you have the legal authority to make decisions for them, but it's absolutely worth jumping through that one hoop so that you can protect them.
0: And you can do this online. You can unthaw the account online. In the show notes, you'll see a link to a story I did that explains exactly how to do that. It does not affect your credit score. It does not affect the current creditors you're dealing with. It's really a no-brainer because if someone steals your information and opens up cards or accounts in your name, it's a lot more difficult to deal with it that way than on the front end, stop them from doing the harm in the first place. That's the point Eva's making here.
2: Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. If you think of it in terms of the level of effort to actually go in and freeze your credit versus the level of effort to unwind an identity fraud case, there's no comparison. We are talking an hour, maybe at the most, for all three bureaus versus days, months, weeks of your life if you become a victim.
0: Final thing before we go. When I make speeches about identity theft, I always tell people there is no undo button in the digital world. If you write in your social security number or your MasterCard or Visa number and click submit, the bad guys, if you're dealing with a bad guy, get it. There is no, oops, I got to take that back. People need to really stop and think and focus before they give out this information as we talked about before.
2: We encourage people to just take five. And I think it's important to understand, here's a little brain research for you, Herb. Okay. When we are engaged in situations that are emotional for us we use a different part of our brain and even if there isn't another person if you're not on the phone maybe you're just on social media but when we're making those um, these logical decisions with our emotional brain it's very hard for us to do that we don't make good choices But when you just back away for a minute and think about it, is this really a good idea? You might be surprised at how your logical brain then kicks in and goes, what are you doing? Not a good idea. You can do the same thing with all of your devices, whether it's your phone or or your laptop. Before you type, hit submit, text it, or even say it you know, take a deep breath and say, I need to take a moment. And that can give you the clarity that you need to make sure that you're making logical choices about what information you're sharing. And we don't need to overshare.
0: For people who've made it this far into the podcast, they may be throwing their arms up now and going, it's hopeless. It's a hopeless situation. But it isn't. It really isn't, I don't think, if you take a few steps of things you've been talking about.
2: It isn't a hopeless situation. And I think sometimes people get overwhelmed and they go, oh my gosh, Eva, you've just told me these like 10 things that I need to do or 20 things. I'm always going to tell you everything that is possible, everything that can reduce your risk, but let's think about it in terms of assessing risk. Even if you do one or two, you have lowered your risk and make that a habit. It becomes a practice, and you can add to that over time. Practicing good cyber and identity hygiene, just one or two new behaviors, they'll become your routine, and you have exponentially reduced your risk.
0: Our guest is Eva Velasquez. She is president and CEO of the Identity Theft Resource Center. One more time, Eva, tell folks how they can reach you if they have questions about identity theft or if they're actually dealing with the problem right now.
2: You can reach our advisors at our toll-free number, which is 888 Four hundred fifty-five thirty, or on our website you can live chat with us or access our help center. And that's at ID, so India David theft. Center.org.
0: Eva, thank you so much for spending time with us today.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure, Herb. You know I always love talking with you, and I hope folks learn something.
0: Well, that's it for this edition of Consumerpedia. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you won't miss any episodes. Another way you can support this show is to follow us at Consumerpedia on Facebook and Instagram or at My Consumerpedia on Twitter. I'm Herb Weisbaum. Thank you for listening.
1: Consumerpedia is a public service of Checkbook.org. We're a unique nonprofit that empowers you, the consumer, to save money and make smarter choices. From auto repair shops to doctors, plumbers to vets, you can count on Checkbook.org to help you find the best services and avoid the worst. Local ratings are unbiased and accurate. If you live in or around these seven cities and haven't joined Checkbook yet, check us out Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, Seattle, San Francisco, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Washington, D.C. To get your free 30-day subscription, go to checkbook.org consumerpedia. Consumerpedia, empowering consumers to save money and make smarter choices.